Guide has written a series of meditations based on the Psalms. Today we hear Malcolm's reading of Psalm 25, is followed by the English Baroque service and the Monteverdi choir under John Elliot Gardner, singing part of Bach's cantata BWV 34. A response to Psalm 25. The gates will open for us both. Look up. I hear that voice each day when I'm downcast. I hear it when I've almost lost my hope. And now, when I'm entangled by my past, my feet are netted by necessity, snared in the traps of time that bind so fast, my eyes turn downward, dimmed by what they see. I hear that voice again and raise my eyes, and he untangles me and sets me free. He alters my perspective. The wide skies speak of his mercy, and the distant hills stand in his steadfast love and make me wise in his simplicity. And all my ills diminish and recede to their true size, that I may find my peace in all he wills.
Minister of Pitlochry Church of Scotland until last Easter. Mary Haddo looks at the story of the wise men coming from the East and bringing their gifts for the baby Jesus. Halfway through the talk, we hear the choir of King's College, Cambridge, singing In the Bleak Midwinter. First, some background information. The Magi were not Jews. They were Gentiles from another land. Why is that important? Well, Matthew is highlighting for us that Jesus didn't come just for the Jews, but also to offer a way back to God for the Gentiles too. Basically, for all people. Epiphany is a Greek word, uh, epiphanos, which means shining forth or manifestation. But these days, the term epiphany has come to mean realisation or sudden insight or revelation. And when you have an epiphany, it's usually often a catalyst to change in a person's life or actions. And I want you to hold that thought at the back of your mind. Chances are we're familiar with the story of three kings of Orient who are bearing gifts and traverse afar or field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. So I thought we would do a little quiz. Now, in this quiz, you don't actually have to answer out loud. Just think what your answer would be based on what you remember of the story. So the first question how many kings were there? Answer, none, because they were magi, wise men. They're referred to as kings because their coming was linked to Old Testament readings, like Isaiah 60, which we read earlier. How many magi were there? Well, we actually don't know. We assume three because there are three gifts. Did they visit Jesus in the stable? No, the Bible said it was a house. Did they visit Jesus when he was a baby? Well, we're not too sure about that one because the Bible actually says that he was a child. So how old was Jesus then when the Magi came? Well, again, we don't actually know. But Herod asked when they'd first seen the star and then he killed off all the boys under the age of two. Not a trick question. What were the gifts that the Magi gave? Gold, frankincense, myrrh. And what was the meaning behind the gifts? Well, the importance of the gifts is said to be the message that each one conveyed about Jesus. Gold is the gift for a king. Frankincense is the gift for a priest. It was burned at times of offerings. Jesus was the king of kings, but he was also the great high priest. And myrrh is a gift for one who is to suffer. It's used both for healing purposes and for embalming the dead. It's strange, isn't it, that as familiar as the story is to all of us, we can always see something new as we read it. Well, that's how it was for me a few weeks ago. I was reading this familiar story, and I was also reading an article on the subject, 
And it was suggested that perhaps there was something in verse 11 that perhaps deserved some more reflection. Matthew 2 verse 11 says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. It was suggested that there is more meaning in those words, then they opened their treasures, than perhaps we realise. So what difference does it make if they presented their gifts after they worshipped him? Well, what if, having found the Christ child and bowed down and worshipped him, that it was then that they had an epiphany, a realisation, a sudden insight, a revelation. And because of that, they presented him with the things that were important to them, that were important to who they were, their treasures. That was In the Bleak Midwinter, sung by the choir of King's College, Cambridge, from their 2021 CD of Christmas Carols. We now return to Mary Haddo with her explanation of the presents brought to the baby Jesus by the wise men. So let's look at these men, these magi, and their treasures, and what presenting them to the Christ child might mean for them and for us. Tradition has it that the Magi were from Persia, once a mighty country where modern Iran and Iraq now are. And these Magi were said to be teachers and instructors of the Persian kings. They were soothsayers and interpreters of dreams. They were men of position and of wealth. And so naturally enough, they would have gold. In Persia, no sacrifice could be offered unless one of the Magi were present. They were therefore viewed as men of holiness and wisdom, sort of priests 
So naturally enough, they would have frankincense with them should they wish to make a burnt offering. These magi were also men who were skilled in philosophy and medicine and natural sciences. And as a matter of course, they would have had myrrh with them in case they encountered injury or death on their journey. After all, their journey was a dangerous one and a long one. It was about a thousand miles they were going to travel. Now, most of us imagine the Magi coming into Jerusalem on the back of their camels, three lonely men in the dark of the night, their way lit by a shining star. But the thing is, it's more likely that the Magi would have swept into Jerusalem as part of a large caravan, a large procession with pomp and circumstance and covered with the dust of a thousand miles. Why do I say that? Well, in those days, the only way you could travel distances into foreign lands and across deserts was in the safety of numbers. Also, they must have been recognized as men of importance because they appear to have no trouble gaining an audience with Herod. And would three travelers coming from another land, coming in the dead of night, have warranted an audience with the king? The Magi who traveled to Jerusalem and later to Bethlehem would have been seen for who they were, advisors to foreign rulers, potential friends, but also potential enemies. But we can also see them as men who sought the truth, who sought answers about a new king. And it's interesting that the one title used about Jesus in this story in Matthew's gospel is that of King of the Jews. And this title used about Jesus here at the beginning of his life is also used at the end of his life. Matthew, in the telling of the story of the Magi, records it as follows. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? And of course, Jesus' life ended with a declaration that he was king of the Jews. It was on a sign nailed to the cross above him. Luke tells us, there was written a notice above him on the cross which read, King of the Jews. For Herod, and for Pilate too for that matter, this King of the Jews was a threat to their kingdoms, to their way of life, someone to be discredited and gotten rid of. But for the wise men, the King of the Jews was to be acknowledged and to be worshipped. And when they came to Bethlehem, there were no miracle healings, no deep teachings, no great wisdom, just a child and his mother. And yet they still fell down and they worshipped him. And the reaction of the Magi, their reaction in response to their worship of this child, this king of the Jews, was a desire to lay at his feet the noblest gifts that they had. Perhaps because they recognized in the child before them something extraordinary. Perhaps it became a turning point for them. They had, become, they had come face to face with the Messiah, the one who would be the light in the dark world. And perhaps they realized that their ways, the old ways, were over. 
that a new day had dawned because a new light shone. Perhaps that was their moment of epiphany. And they realized that their power and their wealth and their position were nothing compared to what they saw in this child. And their lives would only be fully complete when they handed over to him all the things that until that moment they held to be of worth. The things that defined them. The things they thought made them people of worth and of importance. And perhaps as this new church year dawns, we too should set aside all the things to do with the old age, all the things that we hold to be important and of worth and focus upon and worship the one born to be the light of the world. Perhaps in doing so, we too will find this to be a turning point in our lives. We might not feel that we have anything to give the Christ child. But perhaps if we just give Jesus our hearts, we give the greatest gift of all.
Reverend Dr. Philip Noble has many interests, which you can see on his website, bobblestrings.com. In this series on heart and soul, Philip's talking about different aspects of Jesus' ministry. Today, he encourages us to be still. Over the last few talks, I've been thinking about how Jesus noticed things and paid attention to things, and it brought to mind something that happened maybe 20 or more years ago when we used to write letters to each other. I wrote a letter to a storytelling friend in France, and I finished with this. The weather wasn't very good in Scotland in November, and the phrase I wrote was, the wind blows still. He wrote back to me, he said, Philip, do you know anything about haiku poetry? I'd never heard of it before. And he wrote back explaining it was a Japanese form of nature poetry which observed, just kept looking and tried not to make comments, but just uh, commented upon the things they saw. And he said, you've actually done that. You've written a haiku poem. I said, oh, that's nice. And he said, wind blows still. And I thought that was really quite nice. So I started investigating and got some little books about it and wrote to a few people, as I usually do when I want to find out about something, and became quite proficient. And here's a couple of ones that I wrote um, early on. Actually, won prizes. This was one about a tree. We just cut the tree in the garden. And it was almost all cut down apart from one branch. And the poem was, Prune tree, one leaf left for autumn. And later on, another one about another tree. Autumn at last, leaf touches its shadow. And I got quite proficient about doing this and decided that maybe I'd send off some to a, a Japanese-English newspaper and they were published for maybe several months in the year for maybe two or three years. Now, the result was that uh, my friend said, why don't you come to the International Haiku Conference with me in London? And uh, I'll tell you about that next time. But I want to tell you about how to notice things. It's very easy. It's not just about nature, but just keep looking at things round about you and stop and think and look deeply. And, you know, by noticing things and the shadows and the shapes and the smells and the sounds, it helps us, first of all, to slow our own minds down, but also to make them open to the things that really matter. To cut out all the noise that goes on round about us, all the hullabaloo of the world, if you like. And that was one thing that Jesus really wanted us to do, to learn to be still. And remember, the wind blows still. <laughs> 